In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Please be seated. Some of you know that this is not my first time of living on the Upper East Side. Um, I lived not too far away from here, at the corner of 73rd and Madison, in the academic year 1989 to 1990, when I was the seminary intern, uh, live-in full-time at Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church. Um, it was a wonderful year for many reasons, uh, being in the big city, being in um, an interesting neighborhood, uh, being in a lively parish, and especially because that year was the last year for the legendary pastor David H.C. Reed, who was retiring that year after being pastor of Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church for 33 years. Um, Dr. Reed was the real deal. He was of a generation. Um, He was from Scotland. When he was in Scotland, he had been the Scottish chaplain to the Queen. Uh, He was a prisoner of war during World War II, in which he managed to escape with wonderful stories of trading pipe tobacco back and forth. Um, He always had stories. He always had something generous and wonderful to share. And so as befitting such a person, for his retirement, there were major celebrations. Basically, the whole year was giving thanks for him and celebrating his long ministry. A part of this had to do with some of the creative folks in the parish. There were a number of folks who were um, involved in Lincoln Center and, and Broadway and other things. And so they decided that it would be fitting to put together a little musical review to celebrate Dr. Reed. And because I was the young intern, I was pulled into this as well. And so what it meant was that this group came up with a number of, of familiar Broadway show tunes and then put words to them that would match the life of David Reed. So there was a story about David and his wife, Pat Reed. Um, You like the east side and I like the west side. You shop at Fairway and I shop at Zabar's, and on and on and on it would go. Um, The best was the Ten Commandments song. We had imagined that Dr. Reed was teaching the Sunday school and trying to teach them the Ten Commandments. And so the song was, was, one, you always put God first, two, no graven image make, three, be nice to mom and dad, on and on it goes. So you get the sense, and, uh, and the people who were behind this thing took it very, very seriously. And so we rehearsed and rehearsed, and we learned our lines, and the day came when we were allowed to have a kind of dress rehearsal at the university club, where this black tie gala was to happen that night, and it was to raise money for the David H. C. Reed Scholarship Fund. And so there we were, you know, feeling really fancy and full of ourselves at the university club, and it was all decorated for Christmas, just this vast, gorgeous space. We were going along with our rehearsal, and then one of our number noticed that place cards had been placed at the tables. And then they noticed that our table, the performers, the ones who had given blood, sweat, and tears to create this this perfect production, we were seated in the very back, in the dark, behind two columns next to the kitchen door. Now, I don't remember exactly who it was, though I think I know who it was, but someone took about three seconds and swapped the name cards. 
And so suddenly our table was nearer to the front and someone else was seated in the back. You can imagine how that night went. Um, What should have been a a grand and glorious celebration, um, I'd looked so forward to this occasion, Um, I was looking over my shoulder the entire time, wondering who put those name cards out? Who's going to notice that we're in the wrong place? And are they going to call us out in the middle of this whole thing and send us out of the university club and make us eat pizza at Zavaro or something? Um, And so the whole experience was less than it could have been, less than it should have been for me, because I was so worried about our having done the wrong thing, our having insisted on a better place than the one we were accorded. Um, I've never heard today's gospel in quite the same way since. (laughs) The gospel today tells of another banquet, The places are all set, the seats are taken, and people have found their place in more ways than one. And Jesus notices that a few of the guests seem to be scrambling. They're scrambling not for bread or something to eat, but for places of honor. And so Jesus gives them his wisdom, which is part gospel and part mismanners. It's just good common sense. Don't always go for the best seat, he says. Someone more important than you might show up, and then you'll be embarrassed when you're asked to move. Instead, sit in the worst place, and that way you'll be honored when you're invited to sit in a better seat. But then Jesus keeps on going. He says to the host, when you have a banquet, don't just invite those from whom you expect a reciprocal invitation. Instead, be radical. When you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. It doesn't seem like Jesus is very concerned about getting invited back to this particular Pharisee's house, does it? Reminds me of a former parishioner I had who who moved to another city for a little while. He had hoped to retire there, and he thought it would be an easy place to live. But he got there and realized that the social pace was far more taxing than what he'd known in Washington. And people seemed to keep scorecards. And so if you had been invited to one thing at someone's house, they fully expected to be invited to yours. And he found it exhausting and had to retire from retirement and move back to Washington. We can imagine the look on the Pharisee's face, this host, when he hears Jesus, his guest, criticizing his choice of who has been invited to the dinner party. We can maybe even imagine our own reaction if a dinner guest began to lecture us about who should and should not be invited to the gathering. But imagine for a minute what it must have sounded like to those not sitting at that main table, to those perhaps who were standing in the wings as servants, or perhaps those who were waiting outside and listening in through open windows, or perhaps those who were looking in over the hedges, wondering what this great feast might look, much less taste like. Imagine how those words of Jesus must have sounded drifting through the air, to those who were just hoping to get a leftover or two, those who would be digging through the trash to see what was left, those who perhaps would hope that the cook might throw something else out. Imagine their reaction to Jesus' words. 
at this party, at this banquet, Jesus offers advice, counsel, encouragement, both to the guests and to the uninvited. He invites them and us to see an unfolding of God's kingdom. In other words, to see how God throws a party. In God's eyes, at God's great banquet, that feast that's already begun, the feast that, God willing, we will one day uh, participate in, the feast we get a foretaste of in this feast, that feast of the kingdom of God, those who exalted themselves in this life will find places of humility. As the reading from Ecclesiasticus says, the beginning of human pride is to forsake the Lord, the heart that has been withdrawn from its maker. But at the same time, those who have been humbled in this life will find themselves exalted in new ways. Jesus confronts each of us, I think, in this teaching, wherever we may be in life, whatever our position, whether perceived or real, To those of us who might be feeling pretty proud of ourselves, uh, like maybe we've earned a right or a place to enjoy some special favor from God, Jesus reminds us, don't assume the best spot, because there may be others ahead of you. Things may not look like you expect them to be. Others may be ahead of you who don't look like you expect them to look. They may not speak like you expect them to speak or dress or act like you. They may not understand religion the way you do. And so beware, those who exalt themselves will be humbled. But Jesus' words also confront those who may have at times confused humility with humiliation. Jesus speaks to those who don't think they're invited, who don't think there's any way God notices them, whether it's because they don't feel good enough or holy enough or smart enough or rich enough or attractive enough or talented enough or or clever enough or fill-in-the-blank enough. Jesus is saying there is a place for you at this table. You are invited. You are enough. You are a beloved child of God, no matter what the world may say to you. Our gospel really is about humility, true humility, humility that happens when one lives like Jesus lives. And humility has to do with being grounded, with being right-sized. That word itself comes from hummus, hummus meaning earthy and earthiness. And so to be humble is to be rooted, to reflect and recall one's own humanity, to remember at some level from dust we have come and to dust again we will return. What if the church were a place where humility was really valued? What if the church were a kind of laboratory for for testing and and practicing humility and, and getting better at being humble, which sounds like a contradiction, though humility can be a discipline that we can work at and learn to do better? What if the church were a place where humility became something that everybody sort of plugged away at, sometimes with success, often with failure? 
There's a poet named Anne Weems who imagines such a church in one of her poems. She begins by wondering, where is the church? And then she answers that question. The church of Jesus Christ is where people go when they skin their knees or their hearts, is where frogs become princes and Cinderella dances beyond midnight, is where, mid, is where judges don't judge and each child of God is beautiful and precious. She says the church of Jesus Christ is where home is, where heaven is, where a picnic is communion. And people break bread together on their knees. In other words, the church is wherever and whenever people risk humility. The French philosopher and social critic Simon Weil reads today's gospel and thinks of the cross in the midst of this story, this parable. The cross, she suggests, can be understood as a balance, as a lever almost. Heaven coming down to earth rises and raises earth to heaven. We lower what we want in order to lift something else, she points out. And so to lower oneself raises not only the other person, but can raise the whole other side of the equation. Simone Weil loves physics and mathematics, and so she looks at the cross as a kind of way of humility in a sort of spiritual physics, like trying to lift something up. We lower a lever to lift it up. The cross as a balance or as a lever makes me think of the cross itself as a kind of holy seesaw, And that feels less like a law imposed with Jesus saying, be humble, and more like an invitation extended, where Jesus says, try on humility a little bit. Try it on. See where it leads. See what happens as a result of it. See how it feels. See how it changes everything. Again, the church of Jesus Christ is where people go when they skin their knees or their hearts, It's where frogs become princes and Cinderella dances beyond midnight. It's where judges don't judge. And each child of God is beautiful and precious. May Christ give us the faith occasionally to get on those holy seesaws of life. To lower ourselves and with grace help each other learn true humility so that all of God's children might be welcome at the table of God's eternal feast. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.